You're listening to a podcast of This Positive Life, thebody.com's growing collection of first-person stories from people living with HIV. This is Olivia Ford reporting for The Body. Welcome to This Positive Life. I'm here today with Shanna Kozad. Today I'll be talking with Shanna about living with HIV. Shanna, welcome to This Positive Life. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. So now, let's start at the beginning. Can you start by describing how you found out you were HIV positive? While I was there, this was Highlands University in Las Vegas, New Mexico. I met another gentleman who was Native American, and my son's father was also Native American, and and I'm full-blooded Native American. And in some ways, he had a lot of very opposite characteristics from my son's father. My son's father was 18 like I was, and this gentleman was quite a bit older. He was there to receive his second master's, and he had the, you know, I'm the older adult, and I I will take care of you, I will show you the ropes, I will help pave the way for you, and he promised the moon and the stars and all of that good stuff. And I didn't realize that I was that impressionable to an older man at the time. I just thought that I was very fortunate to have caught the attention of an older man who would accept me as well as the baby. When we began to date, I believed at that time that my responsibility as a young woman was that I needed to ask certain questions about his history or about his sexual status. And so I just thought that that was how you are responsible. And I asked if he had ever had an STD. I asked if he had ever had an HIV test, I asked if he'd ever used drugs, I asked if there was any reason why we needed to use condoms in our relationship because I was just not very comfortable with them and I was okay with the option of me just using birth control. And his answers were, I don't have any STDs, I have tested for everything and I don't have anything. I have been married in the past, but I'm divorced, and there's no reason why we would have to bring condoms into this relationship. When the day came that I announced to him that I didn't feel that we were really cut out for each other and that we should part ways, he said, you can't leave. I have picked you. I have AIDS, and so now so do you. I picked you because I needed someone to die with. And I thought that we were arguing about his drinking and we were arguing about, you know, laundry and, um, (laughs) you know, all the little things that add up in your frustration level. And so this came so far out of left field that I just remember not reacting to that statement and just kind of thinking, you know, I'll, I'll bet people just say a lot of, mean things or horrible things when they break up, and so this is probably his version of how you try to hurt someone in a breakup, but it probably has nothing to do with the truth. The arguments and the day progressed negatively, and eventually the sheriff had to be called because it became violent, and he was escorted off the property. Once he left, he left school, he or he left the state or or something, but I never saw him after that. Several weeks later, a friend of mine, another single mother who 
I was learning lots from, and she was helping me in, on lots of levels as far as how to take care of a home and time management and the all of those things. And we were discussing my breakup, and I told her about the part about when he said he had AIDS. And she quickly asked me if I had gone and gotten tested. And my response was, absolutely not. I, I think that he just said that because he was trying to scare me. And besides, in my understanding, people who have AIDS, they look sick, they are sick, they are not going to university, they're somewhere dying, and they're in wheelchairs, and they're hooked up to IVs, and they're hooked up to oxygen tanks, and that certainly wasn't what he looked like. He was completely healthy looking, and he never got sick and never went to the doctor. And we lived together. Of course he wasn't that way. She kept urging the issue that I needed to go get tested. She knew more information than I did, and I needed to be educated. I really resisted her trying to associate me with people who got AIDS. Eventually, she won, and she had bottom line threatened and said, look, if you don't go get an HIV test, we, we are not going to be friends anymore. This is serious. This is something that you need to do, and you need to do it now. More, I think, to appease her than to actually try to educate myself was how I ended up going to my on-campus student clinic and go get tested. When I walked into the student clinic, it looked as if the entire clinic had been shut down for the afternoon, and my nurse was there, and a strange lady from the health department was standing off in the corner and just looked at me as I came in. My nurse was behaving very strangely. The first thing I thought was, oh gosh, I probably have chlamydia, and I am four months pregnant, and I don't even know it. I didn't understand who the the health department lady was, and she wasn't really introduced. She just followed us and went into the room. When we sat down in the room, my nurse burst into tears. She had a hard time composing herself, and she said, "I, I have never done this before. You are the first person that I'm telling this to. I have to tell you that all of your test results came back completely fine, except for your HIV test, and that your HIV is something, when it is tested, it is tested not just once, but it is tested three times until they are absolutely, positively sure. This was 93, so they were sure about their testing methods. She just didn't know what to say after that. I remember looking at her thinking, lady, you're crazy. (laughs) I tried to reassure her, and I said, no, no, I'll bet anything that probably somewhere at the laboratory, my blood, the labels were switched or something, and this is not my test result because look at me. I look healthy, and I feel healthy. Go ahead, and we'll we'll try doing the test again, and I'll come back in two weeks, and I'll show you that everything is fine. Over the next set of two weeks, I did find myself thinking, what if this is really right? What if what he said during our breakup was actually correct? So I went back for my next set of test results, and my nurse was there again. She said, your results are in, and you are still positive. 
I had a very hard time with my second results really being willing to fully accept what she was saying. And in my mind, I kept going back to some of the strangest things that you might think, which is, but I grew up in such a good family, and look at me, I'm making really good grades, and I'm, I'm a really good mom, and I, I'm really smart. And I had all these strange, misconceived notions, again, of who I thought gets AIDS or HIV and who doesn't. Because I needed somehow to have more validation. I asked her to please draw me again and test me a third time. And I told her, if my third test comes back, and I am still positive on the third test. I will 100% completely believe you. So she drew me a third time. I waited another two weeks. And I came back for my third result. And that was when I fully had to face that I was HIV positive. So I was 21 years old with a one-year-old son from two relationships having never been exposed to drugs, having never been promiscuous. So my first feelings and my first thoughts were I was incredibly confused. I was incredibly enraged. I felt betrayed. I felt like my future possible life had been taken away from me. I felt hurt, I felt ashamed, I felt scared. When I really embraced my results, I cried for about the first six months. I, I just, I cried every day. And I stomped and I slammed doors and I swore lots of words to the heavens above me and I journaled and I wrote. It was a wave of grief, sadness, anger, grief, sadness, anger, grief, sadness, anger, over and over and over again, because I didn't feel that I had asked for this. I didn't feel that anyone had, had warned me about this. I didn't feel that I deserved this. I went down to my local sheriff's office, and then I went to the DA, and I said, I don't know how to tell you this, but there's this man out there, and what if he finds another young woman, and he could go and infect a 100 women? And I think you guys need to do something about this because if HIV leads to AIDS and AIDS leads to death, then isn't this somehow attempted murder? They listened to the whole story and they said, well, did you know that you could have just told him that in order to believe his answers that you needed to go get tested together? And I said, no, I did not know that. And they said, well, today, modern-day relationships, in order to really know who your partner is, you have to really take some more steps. You can't just stop at having a conversation about who they are because there are some people who will tell you whatever you want to hear. And if you don't take it to another level and really assert what is important to you and how clear you want these things to be and how well-defined they need to be for you, then if you simply just sit back and let someone tell you sweet nothings, then you are 
beginning a relationship on your own assumptions. It, it was incredibly upsetting. I felt like if I didn't know how young women could get HIV or what their risk factors were, then at least 75% of my college campus also didn't know because there were young women who were doing 10 times more things than what I was doing. It goes even deeper because when I was diagnosed, I was referred to an AIDS clinic where I could be seen by an AIDS specialist. And on my very first appointment, the health department people showed up again. And having more discussions with them, we realized that my son, who was one, also needed to be tested. I had breastfed my son from the day he was born until he was one and a half. So from the time that this second relationship started when he was three months old to the day that I'm walking into the AIDS clinic, I had nursed my son. For me, that's when the devastation really set in. It's one thing to hurt an adult in a relationship. It's one thing to hate someone or to hurt them or to commit a crime against an adult. But I cannot understand harming a child, harming a baby. And surely I, I had thought he must have known that if he was infecting me and I was nursing my son, he knew that there was the, the possibility that I could infect my son. That level of rage and frustration required I had to immediately get help mentally and emotionally. I jumped into counseling. I sought out support groups within the HIV community that were for women. I found a lot of other stories who were very, very similar to mine. As far as trying to gather support from my family, there was really a closed door there. When I called my mom, it was like, well, good luck with that, and I hope everything will be okay, but I don't know what to say about that. And we didn't speak for seven years. This was when you first told her you were HIV positive? Yes. And how long had it been since your diagnosis when you told her? I had called her the day that I got my third test result. I called her and said, school's going great, my son's doing fine, I'm getting good grades, and I have something to tell you. By the way, when that second relationship ended, it turned out that he had HIV and he infected me. My mom tried to sound like she was sorry. She said, well, I'm, I'm very sorry that happened, and that sounds like it's going to be a lot for you to have to deal with, and good luck with that. To this day, I haven't spoken to my dad in 20 years. Did your mother tell your father, or did you have the opportunity to tell him yourself? I did not have the opportunity to tell him. She told him. She also told me that my sister was coming up on her graduation at the end of the school year, this was April, and in May, I was required to come out for my sister's graduation, and my mom said, when you come out and we're going to be at your sister's graduation, I don't want you to talk about this. I don't want you to mention it. I don't want you to ruin your sister's day. Was there any place that you were going to for support? What about the friend who had encouraged you to get tested? Was she someone that you told after you found out that you were positive? Yes. I told her. I told a couple of other girlfriends who were also young mothers who lived in the same family housing unit that I did, I found that I was telling a lot of people <laughs> because I was, I was in shock. I just didn't know where to go with this, and I felt better 
the more that I was talking about it, the entire HIV community, be it doctors, nurses, case managers, and other clients, was very embracing and loving. I found just a ton of support in that community. My friends at school, you know, we, we didn't know a lot of the basics, so I didn't know if I could use their bathroom. I didn't know if I had to eat off paper plates. I didn't know what to do if I had a cut. I had questions like, you know, what do I do when I have my monthly cycle as a woman? I was scared by even the sight of my own blood, and lots of people were very helpful and very willing to tell me, you know, if, if I coughed and sneezed on someone, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have to be afraid. I wasn't going to infect. I didn't have to live under quarantine conditions. Were you getting this information from the aid service organizations you were going to or support groups or were you reading it different places and doing from from the aid service organizations from my case managers from my doctors from my nurses within the first appointments with my AIDS clinic what I was explained was that you know a normal healthy immune system has between 700-800 t-cells to a top range of about 1200-1300 t-cells they said typically for newly diagnosed people, we'll begin to watch the process and it can take up to 10 years before someone's immune system drops to 200 or below 200 and then they have what's called an AIDS diagnosis. So they drew the test and when that test came back, they said your first T-cell test says that you have 189 T-cells. This is pretty amazing. This is not typical. We don't see a lot of people who are newly diagnosed and have what are called these aggressive strains of the virus that just wipe out the immune system very quickly. We're kind of required to inform you that along with getting an AIDS diagnosis, you have approximately two to five years to live on average and we recommend that you make arrangements for your burial and for who will raise your son. I was not prepared to hear that I had a death sentence. I could tell my friends that I had HIV, but I had I couldn't say that I had AIDS. I just wouldn't allow myself to say AIDS. I couldn't like I felt like if I said it out loud I was just going to fall over dead instantly. It probably took about six months for me to learn how to say the word AIDS out loud. This sadness, grief, and anger really, really sunk very, very low for me. I didn't understand anymore why was I going to try to go another eight years in school if I wasn't even going to be alive in the next five. So I dropped out of school. I think one of the things that forced me to get out of that cycle. It was it was a combination of things. One, when I dropped out of college, I felt like I was abandoning the greater populace of young women who were attending college and who had no idea that this could happen to them. I felt somehow like I had a responsibility to other young women to say something about this. The second piece was one of the other things that my doctor had said is that he had come across some cases where some people had absolutely no immune system and they were living, they didn't understand how, but they were living great. And then there were other people who they had seen who were given a diagnosis of 
just the HIV part had a decent immune system, but because they were given this as a diagnosis, their depression and their inability to cope with it resulted in their giving in and being dead six months later. So every day that I got up, I had to get my son dressed, take care of him, feed him, provide for his needs. I had this precious life that was this baby that had been given to me. He was somehow spared. To this day, I don't really know how, because when you think of the process of how often a mother has to nurse their child and the fact that this aggressive virus strain that I had, which had already deteriorated my immune system so amazingly quickly in just one year's time, it's probably sheer miracle that he was not infected. And I felt that if this was that one opportunity that was given as a incentive, I was going to use it. And I was going to take it, and I was going to run with it. So what I told my doctor is, I know you're obligated to tell me that most cases are, of people are dead within two to five years, and that's how you help prepare people. But I'm telling you right now, that's not going to be me. And I'm going to be one of those people that I will have no immune system, I'll have absolutely nothing, but I will still be alive. I've got this boy to raise. I'm committed to him. I'm going to see him become 18. So now, did you start that right away? Is, was that your sort of entree into HIV work? And are you, do, are you still working in the community now? When I first entered the HIV community, there was already an established speakers bureau. There was this partnership between the health department and the Department of Education that funneled monies together. And even though school districts were only funded by the federal government to try to push their abstinence-based programs, the Department of Education really took an aggressive stance that they really wanted to be able to allow school systems from elementary school all the way up to high school to have the ability to be properly educated. So there was a well-formed speakers bureau that would go into schools, colleges, universities, wherever we, we were asked to go to. I knew that there were other women and other men in the HIV community who were part of this big speakers bureau thing, and they talked very highly about it. They were very encouraged by it. For about the first year, a lot of my presentations, <laughs> I, I cried. It takes a lot of courage, but I knew that these other women and these other men in the, the community, that they were stepping forward and having the courage to do this. And if there was this benefit, that this was a way of offering education that people could really listen to, because, you know, the, the videos and the books and the, the literature it, and the, the pamphlets, people just didn't take anything home on a level that they really understood as far as what their risk levels were, what their risk factors were. You know, it didn't address the myths and the truths very well, whereas when you have the opportunity to speak to a person, it, it does. Kids would ask me all the time, well, do you think you're going to die? Do you think you're going to die? Can you feel yourself dying? I was never offended by what they wanted to ask, even though I knew that this was an openness that I had never really shared before. This was a realness. This wasn't just, hi, how are you doing, tech conversation. This was, let's get down to the nitty-gritty and talk about what's really important in life. So it was a very beautiful process. Every single one of those presentations, from day one up until even just this week, 
when I was speaking down in Lawton, Oklahoma. I have had nothing but positive feedback. I've had standing ovations. I've had people who have come up after I share my personal experience and they have cried in my arms and we have cried together. And I've had people hold me and pray for me. I've had people just say, wow, you really taught me something today and I'm never going to forget you. And to me, that sense of responsibility that I had left all those other young women at university not knowing anything, I now felt like I had an avenue to channel the frustration, the rage, and the anger that I had about my being infected by this man. I could now do something about it. And I could do it in a way that turns it from a horrific, awful tragedy that's all about me into something good and make it all about these young people. Tell me a little bit about your background. I was adopted at birth. I am full-blooded. My biological mother was 19 when she had me, and at that time in Oklahoma, many young Native American women were, I don't want to say harassed, but they were put on public display in, in not their Indian communities, but in rural communities so that they were accessed by church-going Baptist ministries. They were given lectures that if they were not educated, married, and living in a house with a white picket fence, that they had no business having children. Many Native American women in the early 70s were forced into being sterilized and were not given the option of ever being able to have children. And there were some very, very bad things happening to women, especially Indian women at at that time. She was young and impressionable and didn't know what to do and was very much offered the possibility that adoption would be a better way for for me, and it would be a better way for her, and it would be a better way for the community. So she put me up for adoption, and it was one of the most painful things that she has ever had to do in her entire life. I'm one of those people that I can say that I've always felt the bond between me and my mother, and it doesn't matter how far away I journey or how long it has been that we haven't spoken or seen each other. I feel the bond between me and my mother. I did not meet her until I was 23. I searched for her from the time I was 18. I knew that I had another mother from the time that I was four because I did not look like my brother and sister who were in the the family that I was being raised. The family who adopted me was an Anglo family And we grew up in Oklahoma City until the age of 12. My family came from the school of thought that adopting babies is very noble, it's very good, it's the right thing to do, it shows what good, caring people they are. However, I didn't know anything about Indian culture, and I was never taken around powwows. I never saw another Native American face until I was 18. When I had reached 18, I saw profound differences between who I was and who my parents were. And as much as I wanted to please my parents and make them like me more, make them like me as much as I felt that they liked their own children, I really felt that I was going to find answers 
more about who I was if I found my culture and if I found my birth family. And I had the sense that, you know, the entire 18 years that I grew up with my Anglo family, I had the sense that my mother, my biological mother, was very, very sad without me and that she was waiting for me to return. So when I was 18, I sent off to my tribe for my head rights, and I was sent a check for $5,000, which is what is equivalent for Native Americans having given up this entire country, our land, and our freedom. And I took the money, and I decided I was going to go on a journey when... I would walk into a Native community and say, I'm adopted, I don't know where I come from, and I'm looking for my mother. There was this outpouring, <laughs> and, it, and it was it was really quite beautiful. And that's what leads up to how I met my son's father, because he was Native American, and I had met, actually, his mother. And although she's not Native American, she was married to a gentleman, and so she knew a lot about Native culture and she answered a lot of questions for me, and she helped me understand things. And even though I looked Native, I, I knew nothing about these traditions. I mean, I wanted to know everything about where I came from. And I was impatient, and, and I felt awkward going up to Kiowas and saying, what is that symbol about, and why do you wear these colors, and why do the men's moccasins look like that, but women's moccasins look like this? <laughs> I was very out of place. People were very, very helpful. The bottom line was that there was no way to get through the records to get my birth certificate opened. It was it had been formally sealed, and so it was really just going to be this process of trying to know as many people as I could until we could figure out the right way to find my mother. And so when I had eventually met my first boyfriend's mother, her perspective was, this is something that you have to pray about. And see, in the, the family that I grew up in, they were atheists. So I knew nothing about prayer. I had no formal relationship with ceremony. What she brought me into was Native American ceremonial ways, Native American church, Native American sweat lodge ways. And she said, you may not know your mother, but you can start by knowing and being introduced to your ways. And this is where you come from. This is what your people do, and this is what undoubtedly what your family is still doing today. It just might not happen the way of filing for documents and doing the paperwork trail, but it might happen this way, through prayer. So I was taught how to pray. I was taught my Native culture through her introduction. Eventually, through the breakup with the, the dad and then the being diagnosed with AIDS and the, and the speaking and all of that. What's really ironic is that one day I showed up at the Santa Fe Indian High School to do a presentation to their seventh grade class. I was invited especially because I was a Native American speaker with AIDS, so it was appropriate for their audiences. And when the teacher said, oh, you're Shanna Humphrey, what tribe does Humphrey come from? Because Native Americans are regionally named according to their tribe. And I said, well, I'm, I'm Kiowa, but I don't, you know, Humphrey is my adopted last name. I don't know what my original last name would have been. She said, hold on. And there are ways that we, we have behind closed doors, but this is what we do. 
I'm going to call this person that I know at the enrollment department within the Kiowa tribe, and I'm going to tell her that I've met you, give me your date of birth, give me where you were born, give me the time of your birth, and we'll track everything from there. I'll have her look through every record that she can find, and we'll figure out who your mother is. Within two weeks, I had a letter from the enrollment department that said, your mother is Carol Kozad. You were indeed born at Grady Memorial Hospital on August 11, 1971. Your records were officially sealed in Oklahoma City. However, in our department, they are not sealed, and we can tell you this. Here is her address. And they sent my mother, my biological mother, the same letter. Your daughter is looking for you. Here is her name. Here is where she was born. And this is her, her current address. Was she excited and to hear from you right away, or was there some apprehension there? Do you she was. She was very excited to hear from me. Within about three days, I got my first letter from her. And she addressed me as her baby girl. It was the fall when we exchanged information, and I went out and saw her the following spring when I was 24. And when we saw each other, we it was like we recognized each other. I'd never carried an ounce of, of anger. I'd never carried... Uh, a resentment towards her. I knew that she had to do what she did. I knew that that was her situation. And there was only room for happiness in our rejoining and reconnecting. So at a time when my white family had abandoned me, here was this open door, and there was my biological family that I could return to. Did you tell them right away that you were HIV positive? I didn't want her to feel like I had been separated from her for 24 years of our lives and she was going to lose me again. So I did not tell her right away. I held on to that information because I really, I, I thought if, if I came from a, a super educated family, the chances of her knowing anything in rural southern Oklahoma was zilch. I was there in New Mexico and my primary resource outside of the HIV community was my son's grandmother, basically my ex-boyfriend's mother. She had a beautiful piece of property, and she said, you can live here, you can stay here, you can be here. Let's focus on raising this boy and helping you to be well. So there were ceremonies there. There were ceremonies in Oklahoma. There was this extended relationship of people who had been helping me from the age of 18 pray and pray and pray and pray and pray to help me find her. And now that I had found her, the same people were praying and praying and praying and praying to help me to be well and to help me deal and live with AIDS so that I could be alive. It's been a really incredible life. And bottom line, in the Native culture that I've been exposed to and what I've learned that is truly one of the saving graces in how I deal with HIV. The native ceremonies and the traditional ways and the, the elders that I got to know later, I was really blessed. I was told things in those ceremonies by those elders, specifically about AIDS. They had such an amazing perspective about this disease. You know, I didn't know that an 80-year-old man up in East City, Wyoming, would have any idea or any clue about what AIDS was in what's called Rabbit Lodge, which is the four days of lodge that occur before Sundance. And this is the Sundance Ways that belong to the Northern Arapaho 
this man had heard that I was I was there, and they invited me in because around these ceremonies, they heal the sick, or they they pray for the sick, they take care of the elders, they love the children, and the men sacrifice and dance and commit to that tradition because it's all for the betterment of their families and of their entire tribe. Ceremonial ways are not just for each person. It's about the entire community. So when someone comes into the community and says, I'm sick with this or I'm sick with that or whatever, it's brought to a focal point. So I was brought into Rabbit Lodge, and it was a, a teepee that was set up, and everyone was dressed in their appropriate attire. You have to step over certain red cedars that are burning. You have to make offerings to be able to present your situation. You have to be completely willing to be open to hearing what they're going to say. So I followed all the instructions, and I was there, and the, the elders knew that I had something to share and to say. And so what I said was I was 24 years old, and I had an AIDS diagnosis, and I had this almost three-year-old little boy, and I had been told that I was going to be dead, but I really didn't want that. I needed help. What these elders said, they were real quiet for a long time. They looked like they were just thinking, and finally they spoke up and they said, we've heard about this, this disease that you had. And, and they never said the word AIDS, but they said, we've heard about this, and we've known that this was coming. And the way that we understand it is that you're going to be okay. How we look at this is that the way that us human beings are, we have collectively been abusing this planet, this Mother Earth that we walk on. All of us walk on this planet. All of us take our steps, whether they're shoes on or shoes off. We take steps on this planet. This is where we live. This is our home. And what we have done here in, in these modern-day times is that we have abused her. We have raped and pillaged her. We have weakened her, what is supposed to be her immune system. And so when we do that, because... Sometimes we, as, as humans, we're not very smart. What, what happens is our mother is going to give us a mirror to be able to look at ourselves. And her mirror that she gave us is this small, microscopic life form that has the ability to take our life away. And what that does is that it helps us to truly feel and to truly understand what we have done to our Mother Earth. If we work together, if we use our intelligence the way that it's given to us, if we honor where we live and all of the steps that we're taking on this Mother Earth, then we won't have these diseases that hurt our bodies and take away our immune systems. So he said the big picture for all the human beings around the planet, because this is something that it, it only happens to us. It doesn't happen to the buffalo. It doesn't happen to our pet dogs at home. HIV happens to us people, us humans. So this is our opportunity 
to learn something and to listen to what's being said. So he said, you know what, I can just tell you, you're going to be all right. I want you to, to really know that. I want you to begin to think about seeing yourself off in the future, and I want you to see yourself as being alive, being vibrant, being healthy, and I want you to hold on to that. And the rest will take care of itself. They prayed and they said what they were going to say. And that was what I took away from those ceremonial ways was that for Native culture, for those elders, the reason for how they interpreted this disease to be here was quite beautiful. It was profound. But if this is something that is here as an opportunity for us to learn from, then of course we should speak about it. Now, are you involved with the Native American community now? Or are you still in touch with your birth family? Has this continued to be a source of support and strength in your life? Yes. I'm still involved with Native traditions and Native ceremonial ways. For me, that has been part of my life-saving and coping methods. It's helped me cope emotionally. It has helped me have that understanding that helps me wrap my mind around this disease. It has helped me communicate to this disease. That is always going to be a part of me. That really was the finite moment where I went from just surviving as a person with AIDS to turning it around and becoming a person that was living with AIDS. I'm still in communication with my birth family, and at this point my mother knows, and she's still not very educated about <laughs> what AIDS is, and I've, I've tried educating her, and it's really kind of funny, but she almost sort of just doesn't want to know too much about it. <laughs> she says, well, I, I'll, I'll love you no matter what you have. I know that you're tough, and you come from a tough line of people, and especially a tough line of women, and you are going to be okay, is what she has said. How did you meet your husband? I've had lots of opportunities to have sexual relationships, but in the beginning, I was just not into it, and I was quite intimidated. You know, I was worried about condoms breaking. I was, it's awkward. It's how, how do you get used to that barrier between you and another person? How do you get comfortable with that? How do you get used to the smell? Who's going to put it on? <laughs> there was just so much there that was an unfamiliar element for me. But eventually I ended up having a boyfriend now and then and learning how to have those conversations. I've never been in bed with someone who was intimidated by me. So eventually I was in a community that I had, a friend of mine had known this other guy who knew another friend who was single. And our friends were saying, you two should meet. And it turned out that we were both Kiowa and both in New Mexico, which is, you know, our tribes are from Oklahoma, and so for two Kiowas to be in New Mexico is kind of strange. It's like having two Navajos living in New York. It's not their territory, but if there's two Navajos living in New York, they need to meet, and they need to find each other. So we met, and by our third interaction, he was very attracted and wanted to know if I was interested in a relationship, and I said, well, it isn't just the me package, the mom package with a kid. I said, you, you need to know everything that I do and what my work is really about because 
my work is is about what I do because of who I am. Um, so you need to know that I'm a person living with AIDS, and I can be in a relationship, but I can't promise you that a relationship is going to last. I can do my best, but I don't want you to have any assumptions that we're going to, you know, go live off for 50 years and that everything's going to just be hunky-dory. This was happening at a time that I was having pneumonias about twice a year. I had had surgeries and had an appendectomy. I was getting body rashes. I had had my hair fall out. I had had lots and lots of problems with my digestive system just completely flat-out failing on me. I had the opportunistic infections uh, and the list of stuff of my body and how it was actually falling apart was quite long at that point. And so I was telling him, I said, I don't know what, if you really want to choose this because I'm, I'm in the hospital about three to four times a year. And it's usually, it's not pretty. And it's not any fun. You know, when my doctor comes in and, and goes, geez, I, I don't know if she's going to make it this time. <laughs> so I'm just I'm letting you know. This is heavy duty, and this is what's going on in my life. I don't know too many people who would want to choose this. He basically just said, I really like you, and I think you're amazing. And I don't care if we have five months together or five years together. I just want to be with you. I'll take whatever I can get. And I understand that. There are parts about this that are not pretty, and it's not all glamorous public speaking and all that, that behind the scenes there's a lot of work. And he said, and I, I appreciate that. And I like you for who you are. So that's, I don't know what whatever else there should be in a relationship, but it's not about the status. It's not about if you have a college degree. It's not about what family you come from. I just like you for who you are. So that was it. I was sold. <laughs> wow. When did you get married? And what year was it? So we were married in 99. I was 29 years old. I was pretty much just on cloud nine. My husband is a lawyer and is in the casino industry, helps the casinos and the tribes and the federal government and state governments all be able to get along and, and operate and function the way that they need to function within... A year of our being married, we actually had a, a busted condom occur. By that time, my, the HIV meds had just come out, and it was my fifth combination of medications, so I had just attained my first undetectable status, and I was undetectable for maybe about four or five months, and so I was pregnant. I had to tell my HIV specialist that I was pregnant. The medication that I was taking to suppress my HIV had actually never been tested on pregnant women. So my daughter, Donica, in the medical community is known as the Kalitra baby because she is the first baby in the world to ever be born and to have had it proven that it was safe for pregnancy. What happened after her pregnancy and everyone seeing that she was born with all 10 fingers and all 10 toes, she didn't have two heads, is that then they were able to recommend worldwide that for other HIV-positive women, 
if they wanted to become pregnant, that this was a medication they could officially approve and deem safe. It was an amazing piece of HIV history to be formally a part of. And she's HIV negative, I assume? She is HIV negative. My husband is HIV negative. He's been tested, and he's been tested regularly. And the pregnancy was amazing. I knew within two weeks of being pregnant that I was carrying a girl. And I knew that she was going to be a powerhouse. (laughs) When you see a mom that is glowing when she's pregnant, that's what happened to me. I was completely just glowing when I was pregnant with her. And it was all her. It wasn't just me because I, I look good being pregnant. It was her. It was the energy of her. And that's exactly how she is today. She is a formidable little girl. She's an amazing force to reckon with. <laughs> she knows exactly what she wants. And she knows what she wants to do and what to be. And she's got, she has her life set and planned out. <laughs> the pregnancy went well. And the birth process, I was allowed to have her naturally. I did not have to have her cesarean. Right after her birth, she was given six weeks of liquid-dispensed prophylactic HIV medications, which also helps reduce her risk. And then she was not breastfed. She was formula-fed, so that that was not a risk for her. Her actual labor was, as long as it's fast and as long as it's not intense, Fast labors are completely safe and completely fine and okay. It's when labors go on and they're long and the mother is strained and the baby is strained, that's when risk factors are increased as far as mother-to-child transmission. So how long was your labor? Three hours. Oh, so you have two children. Yes, and Donica was born in April of 2001, and then... Because I had such an incredible relationship with my sister growing up and loved having a sister, I wanted Donica to have a sister. So we figured out that when you engage in sex and then you have a condom filled with sperm, it doesn't take rocket science to figure out once he's done and taken that off, you simply reverse it inside out and you can inseminate yourself and voila, you are a pregnant woman again. And he has not been exposed, and you have succeeded in the process of gathering the necessary components. (laughs) So in December of 2002, we had Mallory, and she is also HIV negative. So the same doctor who said, I have to tell you you're going to be dead in five years, was the same doctor who was in tears and filled with joy when I walked into the clinic for my quarterly checkup with my second baby. And one of the other unique things is that when a woman's body is pregnant and carrying that life, her immune system surges. All of her systems surge. You grow more hair and nails. Just everything is like kicked up a notch. And when I was first pregnant, I had about 100 to 125 T-cells. And my my T-cells had actually dropped from the time when I was first diagnosed from 189, they had dropped all the way as low as 11. So I have literally had 0% of an immune system. And then when we when medications came along, I was able to get up to about 100, 125, but never more than that. 
But when I got pregnant, they went up to 500. So I credit being able to get my immune system back by Donica, by the fact that she gave me my immune system back. I don't know if her body trained my body. I don't know if it's just the process of what happens to a woman's body that all of a sudden your body has to remember how to have an immune system. I don't know. But now I'm um, anywhere between the high 400s to the low 600s for an immune system. And your viral load is undetectable now? It has been. My viral load has been undetectable for 10 years. Are you taking meds right now? Yes. I take Colitra, Viramune, and Viriad. I also take Singular, Zyrtec, Claritin, Paxil, and Prozac. So three HIV medications, three allergy medications, and two antidepressants. And do you have private insurance? Nope. I was deemed disabled in 97, which was following a whole series of pneumonias and the, the surgery and the, all the opportunistic infections was really what led my doctor to say, okay, that's it. I know you're fighting the fight, and I know you're partisan, and you're doing well, and you feel great. However, <laughs> your body's just falling apart left and right. So we're making the formal recommendation for you to have disability. You will get Social Security, and you will get Medicare that will cover you for hospital doctors, and it will cover 100% of your medications. And I have gotten off of disability, and I've gone to work three times over the years. I'm now in the process of beginning my fourth time getting off a of disability and going to work. Oh, what are you going to be doing? What kind of work are you doing? It's going to be dependent upon how much work I'm going to be able to establish for myself, but I currently have working for a day spa, and one of the things that I had done before I had actually left California was I had went through a massage school and got my massage training in Esalen-style massage, which is very similar to Swedish. I've used it off and on over the years, but it was never something that I had specifically set out as a career. It was just sort of always something that I would fall back on if needed. And it's not at all the type of back alley with a happy ending type massage. It's professional, therapeutic, stress-relieving massage. And I've worked for health departments, and I've had prevention educator jobs. I've done lots and lots of work in the HIV community. And in this state, the last job that I had was working for the health department that I was actually quite quickly burnt out because HIV education here in this state is about 20 years behind. What sorts of things do you do to keep up with you besides staying adherent to your meds? And also it sounds as if um, Native American culture and ritual is an aspect of um, keeping healthy. What other sorts of things do you do? Because I know that I have such an aggressive virus and I know that I have to adhere to taking my medications, I've also learned that what works for me and my body in order to truly feel a sense of health is I eat organic, I utilize a lot of body work as much as I can schedule. So that's massage, Reiki, Traeger work. I love Chinese acupuncture. There are some Chinese medicines that are also very good. I also do chiropractic care and make sure that my spine is in good alignment so that nerve endings to my organs are not cut off. I do reflexology, and then I still go to my women's groups, and I'm still an active part of my HIV community. Those are my people. And so the AIDS walks, World AIDS Days, all the community-level organizations that are grassroots are things that are, are very helpful for me. I wish I could say that I exercise as much as I like to, and I've had times uh, in my years that I've been, I belonged to a gym and I was there three days a week for hours on end. <laughs> but at this point, 
exercise is not very high <laughs> on my list. And when you've got three kids and three crazy dogs and you're trying to go to work, and I'm also now a full-time student, I've gone back to trying to finish my degree, there's just not a whole lot of time to actually try to figure out how to get to the gym. And I'm usually chasing around after my kids anyway. How do you think having HIV has changed you? It has changed every part of my being. HIV has changed my understanding of being a woman. It has changed my understanding of being a partner in a relationship. It has changed how I parent, how I'm a mother to my children. It's changed how I see my social responsibility to the community, to the world at large. This is something that, it was profound that happened to me. I'm not going to sit quietly at home and just not do anything about it. We know that there does not have to be another single person that has to be infected because of lack of education or lack of resources. And so the more that people have access to the education and the more that they know where to go for tests and the more that they are exposed to what this looks like to live with this, if that helps the community, then I'm doing my job. This has impacted me spiritually at my core because I have had to address between me and Creator, I have had to address my need and my desire to live. There isn't an area of my life that I can say that it hasn't touched. It's incorporated in every part of my being. Shanna, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story in this way. Thank you. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. Thanks for listening to This Positive Life. For more podcasts and other first-person stories, please visit us online at thebody.com. If you'd like to share your story, please email us at podcast at thebody.com. Thank you.